Welcome to another episode of Research to Practice What Do. I'm Emily. And I'm Andrew. We're your hosts guiding you on your journey in bridging the gap between research and practice. We are here to help all this make sense by sharing ours and others' perspectives on the current research and the intricacies of clinical practice. So, today we're joined by a few exercise physiologists who are all either fresh out of their degrees or only a couple of years into their practice. Their names are Alex, Angela, and Cassie. Today, we're all gonna talk about preparedness, challenges, and green or red flags for where you want to work and whatever else comes up for the next hour. So I'll also just quickly explain, my voice sounds like this right now because I went to a wedding last night and when I have a few to drink, this is what happens. So apologies for anybody listening, thinks I sound a bit weird. But with that, I'm gonna pass it over to Alex to begin with. Alex, can you give us a little mm-hmm. intro of yourself and what you do? Hi, I'm Alex. I'm, um, I graduated in December, so I graduated with Emily and Andrew and Cassie. Um, I work for New South Wales Health, so I'm a paediatric EP and I work on a multidisciplinary team for paediatric weight management, um, and I work in southwestern Sydney. Awesome. Um, Angela? So I am two years out. This is my second year being an EP, and I... I have two jobs. Um, One of them is being a community EP and the second one is working at a private practice with all sorts of people. All sorts of people? Sorry, I meant like all sorts of populations. Uh, Ah, gotcha. um, Like a mixed population group of MSK, um, diabetes, NDIS, that sort of stuff. Yeah, awesome. And Cassie? So I'm Cassie. I work in a private practice and mainly see CTP work cover clients. And I'm also like graduated with Em and Andrew and Alex. So <laughs> I've been working for like four months. And Andrew, we probably should introduce like where we work as well, just because we're also new grads. <laughs> so I'm working in a physio practice and it's private practice as well. Um, I mainly see people with pain, Got a couple POTS long COVID clients and um, uh, workers' comp and CTP as well. Okay. And uh, fun fact, I don't actually work for anybody. So um, <clears throat> I can't actually say that I'm technically a new grad. Yeah, I guess I would just only say that I'm doing research at the moment, really am. Yeah, awesome. So it sounds like we kind of all work in similar yet different areas, different parts of Sydney. Um, I mean, Alex is just over there in the the end of the table, if we've got the visuals, um, he's off with pediatrics. So I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about what you all do and what the experience is like for you guys. Um, and yeah, feel free to butt in and talk whenever. Pass the baton to Alex. What's the question? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Tell us about your experiences working um, with the pediatric population or just with working in government, public health? All right. So um, I didn't have any public health placements during uni, and I don't think there's many. And that's something I can always touch on in a little bit because it's something I've had to discuss in my position and my role as well. But um, public health is very different from private health. Of course, you have similar, working as an EP is very similar, but things like um, note-taking and all that type of thing, the processes are very standard and they have to be done. Um, so I think that was the main difference for me, just with private practice or just with when I was doing placement, 
it was really just about, you know, running people through programs and then sending them home or going through education and whatnot, depending on the place. Whereas public health, I have to have a meeting with my whole team about kids. I have to I have to do notes every single time I see someone and I have to do notes for every encounter. So even if I just have a phone call with a parent, I have to log that and I have to log exactly what I say because, um, yeah, because that's the rules, right? So it's a very rigid, you have to do this, this is the standard, this is where you go. So I guess that was the main thing. Um, I guess the other thing that was the biggest difference is my um my position and my role is government funded. So my service is free to the kids that we see. So I think that was a big, big difference because I feel like a lot of private practice, whilst it has to be business oriented, otherwise you can't open a business. Um, I thought that was very different because that's something that we don't really have to focus on. That's not something I have to look at. I don't have to take someone's Medicare number. I don't have to say, okay, we have five more sessions. My program runs for two years. So the kids I see, I can see them for a whole two years and I can book them in whenever available. I guess what does come with that is then my caseload's quite heavy. Um, so in terms of seeing kids, I, I can't see people on a weekly basis to an extent. I can have weekly phone calls or whatnot, but based on how much work it goes into, you know, taking notes, seeing clients about, it takes quite a lot of effort. Um, so I can only see them on a monthly basis. So it's more about trying to make a lot of changes, which is a bit difficult because a lot of the private practices I was on place and then you see people weekly or they can afford to see you weekly or their Medicare plans five sessions and you see them for five weeks and then you discharge them. So I guess that was also a big difference. So it's not just five sessions and they're done or three sessions and they're done. It's two years you sit and grow with these kids and you kind of have to develop and work with them. So I guess those were some big changes. Is anything I said unclear? Does anyone want to ask a question about anything? I'll just keep going. Comprehensive. That was great, Alex. I didn't yeah. actually notice you. I didn't realize you have a two-year program with all your clients. Yeah. So, so it is non-compulsory. So they don't have to stay. For example, if kids make a lot of progress over a six-month period, we're happy to discharge them to the care of their GP. But that option is there. So, for example, um, one kid I recently saw has made immense progress over six months, and I said, you know, we're happy to discharge you, but you know, we're still here for the next eighteen months if you want to just have a bi-monthly or sorry every second month or third month checkup and they thought that was a good idea because it would keep them accountable and they could come in and just check in and see how everything's going and then I also told the mum you know you can always call me for any questions or ask for any help because you're still part of the service so that's one of the advantages um I think one of the main things I think is a big difference is so I'm the only EP on my team so I work in a multidisciplinary team so I have we have I think four dietitians me a clinical nurse a social worker a pediatric fellow and I think we're in the middle of hiring another pediatrician but don't quote me on that and then we also have um we also are looking for a clinical psychologists to work with things like eating because I work in wet management so it's quite a multidisciplinary team and I guess it's just the fact that I have to work with so many different areas and I meet with them on a daily basis so it's not just you know a monthly meeting to see what everyone's doing in their own space it's I work with them on a day-to-day -day basis sometimes we'll have clients on the same day and then we have to do handover. And it's interesting how everything links to different things. So they might really, really enjoy seeing me, but then they don't want to go see the dietitian because it's a harder session or it's different. So, or some people, sometimes they don't want to see me. They only want to focus on diet and that's fine. And then you just have to work around that and work with the people. So, yeah, I guess those are the main things about me and what I do. Yeah, it sounds like you're really juggling quite 
a few different things. So like communicating with the parents themselves, communicating with other people in your team, trying to like the funding is awesome. Um, the con of that, it sounds like is your caseload is quite a lot. Um, so I guess we can go into for you now, what would you say that you were most prepared for and unprepared for going into this role? Um, so for me, the most thing I was prepared for was exercise prescription. I think that's for me, it's very much not black and white, but it's one of the things that I found easiest in uni because it's also one of those things where it has a clear cut of this is the contraindication, this is what's better, but you can also prescribe other exercise. What I wasn't prepared for was I think the population, I didn't realize how complex it was because obviously it is weight management, but I see a lot of kids with autism. I see a lot of kids with, um, you know, they have, you know, maybe they have type one diabetes. So they have a lot of other conditions that's not necessarily linked to weight, but that you're also having to look at as well. For example, I have someone with chronic pain. Um, and so it's not just weight management, but weight management is what they're referred to me for. And I guess the hardest thing I have is my notes have to reflect that I'm prescribing exercise for weight management. So if there are other conditions, um, whilst that's okay to sit and work on, because inevitably it will have a bigger, better outcome. I have to also reflect that I am doing the role that I'm um, there for. So I can't just say, okay, we only looked at his chronic pain today. Um, I have to, you know, go about it in that type of way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've got an interesting question on that, Alex. Have you ever had pushback um, on, because I know, and Emily's mentioned health at every size before, and what you do might conflict with some of that philosophy. Have you ever had pushback um, from, you know, your employer that you're not prescribing exercise adequately for weight management? No, um, my um, my team is actually very, very supportive. Um, when I first got there, they did say, you know, Alex, you are a new grad, but you also are the only EP there. So you you're who will go to for exercise prescription. So I'm in that role where I have to step up. I have to do a lot more research. And they're actually asking me, is there anything we can do to make sure that you know, what you're doing can help. The one thing I do have is I have all the notes from the previous EP that was there who did a fantastic job doing a handover. So I can also see whether I'm prescribing things um, at an appropriate rate. I don't think anyone's challenged whether it's appropriate. I think sometimes it's more, do you think you could be giving them more? And it just depends on whether I've built a good relationship with the family or with the parents or with the kids. Because Honestly, it can depend with parents, how much time do they have? Because both parents, maybe they work full-time jobs, maybe they have other kids as well. I can't just say, okay, you need to enroll them into sport four times a week and pay this amount of money because, you know, so it's more just finding the right way to approach exercise. Sometimes I've been asked, you know, maybe is there a better way you could have approached it? But I've never been told, you know, your exercise prescription is wrong. Um, especially because I'm usually working in a population where, the kids that I see are the kids that aren't doing any type of exercise. So the goal is there just exercise engagement is usually one of my main goals as well and finding something that they enjoy because that will help them keep it for longer term. Um, one thing I should have mentioned is, so I see kids between the ages of two to 17. Um, I think the youngest kid I've ever seen is three years old. And so it will vary based off of the age as well. And so I don't think I've ever seen the same uh, different kid and said, this is exactly the same for this kid. I think every single kid I've seen different completely so I guess the challenge is more just finding the right fit 
But other than that, I think my team's quite supportive. And anytime I do need help, I can always reach out and they just ask me whatnot. One thing, so this this might go out to everyone. I'm not sure if anyone has this. I have mandatory clinical supervision. So I have to see someone at least on a monthly basis. So I see someone who's an EP from Westmead. The only downside is they have to be within New South Wales Health because everything's confidential. So it's very difficult to find someone with pediatric experience, but um, that's still working in New South Wales Health. But I found someone that I see on a monthly basis, and then I just discuss things like how to write an NDIS referral or how to write a support letter, or you know, am I doing, the, am I approaching this behavioral strategy the right way, or is there any CPD you'd recommend? So we go through a lot of different you know challenges. I'll write them up through the month, and then I have a one one and a half hour session with them, and we just go through everything. So that's been quite helpful in terms of you know making sure I'm doing the right thing with exercise. So, yeah. Can I just say, it sounds like you have the best EP job ever. <laughs> like uh, you work with kids, you have this, like the supervision sessions, you have like the support from an like MDT. So like, are there any like cons to, you know, working I think- in, in public pa- practice? Um, what do you reckon? Like what, what's been something that, You've been like, oh, I was not ready for that. Okay, so there's a few things um, and I'll explain them. I'll try to make sure I explain it properly. So I think the first thing was the actual note taking. It is really, really stressful sometimes with the note taking because I can't have any spelling mistakes. I can't have any errors. It has to be really clear because other people are reading it. And I guess the one thing I wasn't prepared for was um, a lot of your, your notes can be legally used in court. So there has to be no mistakes because if it's used in court and there's mistakes, you have to go through it, find it. And then it gets to a point where obviously it's never happened to me or anything like that, but you don't want it to get to a point where it's he said, she said, you want to make sure that everything's very clear. So if it ever has to get used in court or if it ever does get brought up, they're like, oh, okay, Alex did this. This is what was said. And for, for example, um, if they're late to a session, I have to write late for 20 minutes. Therefore, I couldn't completely assess da 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 da. Right. So I guess that's the main one with notes. It can be a bit hard getting used to that format. And I think as EPs, we're not, it's not something I was taught during placement. Whereas things like dietitians, they they have to do a community health and they have to do hospital placements. And it's a very set format on how you write notes. So that was very difficult to adjust to. And it's something I'm still adjusting to. But I think compared to when I first started, it's gotten a lot better. Um, I think one thing I wasn't ready for was I didn't realize how um, the different demographics that I would be working with because I do use a lot of interpreters in different areas for example I work at Fairfield Liverpool Campbelltown all different areas and then I have different cultural backgrounds so there are people I get that are referred from like refugee clinics where I have to use interpreters and it can be difficult because I don't know if what I'm saying is being translated directly to what they're they're listening and I guess that's the difficulty that I'm also having with interpreters you don't know if what you're saying is either being interpreted as you say it or if they're receiving it the way you're trying to get it across. So it's things like at uni, we get a lot of like, I don't want to say fancy ways of explaining things, but really like if you're explaining something like insulin resistance or just pain in general, things like that, you get a lot of different ways to explain it to clients like, oh, you know, pain this, if you look at this mountain or whatnot, you can't do that with an interpreter because the moment you try, I've tried it once, the moment you try, they kind of just look at you blankly. You kind of have to just find the simplest way to try to get get some information through. Um, just because I feel like that's also the safest way to make sure that you're definitely telling them exactly what you want to be telling them. Um, I'm just trying to think. I think there was one more. I think the caseload can be a bit heavy. 
Um, and I think one thing that's not talked enough about is um, fat um, compassion fatigue. So I work with kids and families and after, you know, six months, it can be really draining just, um, you know, because you've obviously worked with a family for a full six months or whatnot. It, it, sessions can be really draining and they can be quite tiring. And so just making sure, you know, you have someone to talk to on the team. Luckily, I have a really nice team that I can always just pop in and chat to if I'm having some problems. But I think that was also something I didn't really expect because I thought, you know, okay, working with families and kids, it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Sometimes there is that fatigue there where you're kind of just thinking, you know, it's, it can be a bit heavy because, you know, it's kids you're working with. But other than that, it's been it's been quite good. Um, Caseload is actually not too bad or manageable. I think it's, I do have a KPI, but it's not necessarily as enforced as um, private practice, if that makes sense. So um, there is a certain quote I have to meet, but it's more based off of if I just have to justify my other time if I haven't met it, if what I was, what else am I doing? So for example, if I have a lot of training or if I'm doing a lot of research, my KPI is a bit lower. That's one of the reasons why. Um, whereas I know there's a lot of private practices that are like, oh, how high can your KPI be? Um, that's not the case with my team. It's more like how high quality can you give to the parents and the families? Um, so I guess that's a big difference for me from private practice. Um, and I think that's one of the, I, I know it's a privileged thing because we don't charge our clients because it's government funded. So I think that's one of the privileges that comes with government funding. And I think I prefer that over private practice. Um, and please jump in if you disagree with, but I think private practice, there has to be that business format. But the moment you have a certain price for your service, and I know it's because, you know, you put a lot of time and effort into yourself. You need to value the time that you're giving. But the moment you put a price on what your initial is outside of things like Medicare, well, outside of things, you're putting a price limit on, oh, yeah, I can treat these people, but only the people that can afford to see me. Because even if, you know, for example, they might only need one session with you, um, no one's going to look at you if that you're charging a certain amount for a session. They're going to probably go somewhere else or even they might not go to that. So I think that's one of the privileged things with that area. So yeah, I guess that sums everything up. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned the things that you weren't prepared for were things that aren't really related to what we are taught as like EP. So like the compassion fatigue, the, the note, writing and the fact that you know you've got that legal side to it um and then also just like communicating with people who are translators and communicating in other ways um so like uh, a little bit more like culturally aware or appropriate and things like that like we were taught like or told about those things really really briefly in my opinion um so I wanted to pass on to Angela or Cassie because uh, we're kind of talking about now funding and uh, KPIs and things like that. Um, I'm happy for one of you to start and just, yeah, telling us a little bit more about your experiences with those things and your experience in general. So what did you guys feel unprepared for and prepared for? I'm happy to go first. Um Things that I felt prepared for was, again, something Alex mentioned was the exercise prescription. I think for sure, like prescribing exercise, amazing, great, 10 out of 10. And then when it came to working, it was things I was not prepared for was the amount of admin work you have to do, not even just between clients, but at the end of the day, like making sure that all your notes are done to an extent where 
whoever was to pick up that client could read it and be like, okay, like Ange did X, Y, Z. That means I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. Um, And then also, I guess, working private practice is the business skills. So, um, yeah, things like, I I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say like selling yourself in a sense, whatever that may look like, um, something I was not taught and something that I really struggle with right now, even in private practice, um, which like wasn't even talked about at uni. It was never like, I just always assumed, you know, when you graduate uni, it's like you just get this influx of clients wherever you work and your boss kind of helps you with that. But um, yeah, no, it's something I really, really struggled with as a new grad. Just wanted to clarify that um, you expected you get an influx of clients. Is that um, like you haven't gotten that? Is that what's been the struggle for you, Angela? No, it was more just like when like ret- like client retention, like I don't know how to explain it. Um, like it was it was a big influx in the beginning, but then, you know, as the the time goes on, you kind of have those like quiet periods and then you just kind of expected to, you know, meet doctors and do all these things, which again, something not prepared to, you know, go into a GP clinic and advertise your service and what you do and who you are and stuff like that. So it was kind of like an expectation or an understanding that there would always be a client flow, whereas now it's like, oh, no, I actually have to retain some clients. And if I can't do that, I need to do extra work to go and find clients. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, gotcha. Yep. I remember even for myself, um, I resonate with that a bit because the first couple of times I had quiet periods, I was like, oh my God, like, does no one want to see me? Like, is this me? And just like realizing that it just comes and goes, it ebbs and flows and that's okay. And like people go away and people, yeah, don't want to see you for now. And that's okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Cassie, what were you saying? Yeah. So um, my company is a little bit different. So like I said, I generally only see work cover clients. So actually insurance is paying for it. They're not paying out of pocket. Um, as well, my I think my business seems to be more established, so I'm not actually expected to get referrals. They actually give it to me, and it's they hand out referrals based on location. Uh, pretty much as well, though, I wanted to say one big thing that I kind of didn't expect was I obviously have to go to medical case conferences, and I don't want to like bag out GPs, but I don't think some are aware of the wording of they of like the stuff that they say to a client, especially when they have like pain that client can, can can like catastrophize their pain. And when they come to me, they're like, oh my God, like my body is breaking down. And you're like, you know, like, I'm not going to lie. Like a lot of work cover clients are lower back pain. And a lot of them will be like, yeah, my body's breaking down. I can't do this. I can't lift. I can't do anything. And it's up to you pretty much to kind of get that client to kind of understand that they're not breaking down. Like it's normal. Other people are going through it too. Um, I guess it just it was kind of a shock just because in a sense, I think in uni, you didn't expect that to kind of come from GPs. Also as well, just for me, um, obviously I'm expected to get work cover clients back to work like as soon as possible. Sometimes it'll feel like you're going head to head with insurance and the GP themselves. Obviously you want to do what's best for your client but their job as well is you got to kind of keep in mind is they want that client to get back to work 
on some capacity to back to pre-injury duties, full-time hours. Yeah, I think just be aware that sometimes work cover can be very frustrating because it kind of sometimes feels like you versus GP managers, like case managers and insurance. Um, So that was the biggest shock because I think I remember in our course, it was kind of like, you know, we work in a team to bring that client back to work, you know, or la-di-da. It's not like that (laughs) whatsoever. Um, So, yeah, that was the biggest, I think, shock for me. And I think as well, work exercise prescription for work cover is very, very different to as you would give to a private client. Very, very different. So that's to keep in mind as well. So you mentioned that it's like very different with what the insurance and the GPs are kind of expecting and then what you're trying to do. What is an example of that clash? Like what's happening there? Um, so I don't know. Oh, we'll see. But there is something called corporate clients, um, just for everyone to kind of know, where pretty much um, – the business is paying a premium for this doctor to get that client back to work as soon as possible. So the, the, the doctor will kind of give a time frame to the insurance and you are expected to get that client back. So for example, like a month, that client back to work within that capacity. Obviously, it looks bad on that doctor if that time frame doesn't happen because it's the expectation from those companies. Um, so more, yeah, things more like that. Um, I have had a big clash with GPs in medical case conferences, I think as well, really no, I think as well for, uh, my work is you actually really need to know pain stuff, how to kind of provide pain management to clients. Like I said, I see a lot of actually lower back clients that would have, have like an injury from like repetitive movements and just things like that and like office workers just from sustained sitting um but it kind of surprised me as well that gps aren't some are not up to date with pain management they don't even know how to kind of explain it and i actually get a lot of clients that the gp will refer to a pain specialist because they don't know how to provide that education to the client Mm, so there's the um the gp's got this expectation to be really on point on what that person's recovery is going to look like and you being the person actually helping the client you realize that like people's recovery can be you know it's usually not in a particular time frame i think as well i've had a few where they've not wanted to go down the surgery route um, and I don't think GPs kind of know the time frame because obviously, for example, if they're a warehouse worker and they don't want to have like an ACL, they, an ACL recovery, and they'd rather go down the kind of not surgical route and just kind of go through like physiotherapy and EP, GPs will think, oh, yeah, they'll be back in no time. They'll be able to lift. They'll be able to prolong stand in the warehouse for long periods of time. And it's kind of like, no. <laughs> That's not how it works. Like you can bring them back in some capacity, but do not expect them to be able to stand there for eight hours a day. Yeah. And I'm also wondering, what is that like 
trying to communicate these things to GPs that are not up to date with the evidence that are referring to other people, e.g. like pain specialists, and who are giving these timeframes that um, don't seem very realistic? It can kind of be, okay, so obviously you can't, you kind of have to communicate in a nice way because also as well, you got on the flip side, these GPs are giving you referrals (laughs) as well. So you can't be like, go at them, but it's, uh, sometimes I find it really hard in that meeting because in that meeting as well, is that client as well as their rehab consultant? It's not just you and the doctor. There's people as well there. Sometimes there can even be lawyers there and it, it it's it's just trying to say it in a nice way sometimes I actually do find it easier to potentially communicate to the client so when the client brings that up it just kind of sounds a little bit better and it's coming from them it's like no this is what I want to do sometimes coming from another kind of like allied health professional it just I don't I don't think they just take it on board as much as they obviously they're going to listen to the client more than they're going to kind of listen to you um so that's kind of how I deal with it I've had I have had a few GPs that, that kind of have shut me down and be like it's not your time to talk like let me talk um so I also was will say yeah there are there there are varying different GPs I've had great ones and there are there are different ones but yeah just be aware that as well you should just really know your stuff and try and like yeah stand up for your client because in a sense like you actually see these people weekly and in a sense I don't want to say you know better than the GP but you like you are seeing this client more than they are they only see them once a month to update the certificate of capacity I want to clarify one thing and I kind of want to home in on what you just said you've been told explicitly by a GP that it's not your time to speak yes yes was that GP an older male by any chance yes it was that makes sense to me I'm sorry but straight away I see the prejudice there of a young female EP, <clears throat> excuse me. So female, young EP. So it's like, this isn't your place to talk. You're an EP, you're a woman and you're young. Yeah. And Can like- I also say as well, I've actually had some GPs not know whatsoever what an EP is. And they kept saying, oh, I'm going to refer to physio. And I'm like, no, this, this patient has actually been discharged from physiotherapy and now is in my care. And so just be aware that, yeah, a lot of older GPs have no idea what an EP is and still think that we're physiotherapists. Yeah, you have a lot of communication issues, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, yeah, as a as a whole, yeah. Um, so yeah, just be aware that it's <laughs> work cover can actually be quite difficult. Yeah, I find that really interesting because I wanted to bring a bit of a parallel that um, you and Alex are both working with people who get funded. So the sessions are not, they're not paying for it. And like, maybe I'm just making a parallel here, but I find it really interesting that you guys don't have the financial barrier, like the client themselves don't have the financial barriers. You as exercise physiologists don't have to worry about the client paying. However, there's so many different other barriers and unique things that are happening because of that so Alex has like that caseload um and then you also have the other healthcare professionals and having to fight for the treatments that you think are needed for the client I don't know if I like I'm just trying to make a parallel there but yeah Alex one other thing that I was going to say is also a bit difficult is that just knowing that so we're funded by the government so they don't have to pay because we get funding from the government so we don't have obviously we don't have to battle insurance 
But then another thing is that I might not have as many resources as you would have in private practice or in that sense. So for example, a gym space, I do have space to do things with kids or with and show parents type of things like that. But um, sometimes I think that's a limitation in terms of, you know, I'm an EP, I've, I've spent my whole, you know, uni period learning how to train in a gym. And I guess that's something that maybe I think uni might need to kind of go about just the fact that you might need to be prepared for what if you don't have space for those things? Or what if you don't have a gym space? Because I've managed to learn how to use the space that I have and how to use education and when's the time to do an EP session and when's the time to do a more of a talking session. Um, and I think that's that's probably been the hardest thing. And then also realizing, you know, the demographic I'm using, very few of them I'm actually going to get into a gym because they're all too young. Yes, Andrew. I want to say one thing. What makes a talking session not an EP session? Yeah, okay. So m- misworded, but it's still an EP session, but I guess it's the it's the um what's it called? It's the expectation from clients and their parents. So they come in to see an exercise physiologist and sometimes I do get a bit of pushback in terms of, "Oh, why have we come to a session? We're not we haven't done any exercise today." Because I felt that we did a lot of exercise education. I've given them exercises to do at home or whatnot. And then I also need to realize then then I'm not doing a good enough job explaining my role on the team. If I haven't, because it look, it, it can come down to you working with family, but if there's confusion, I also have to take and acknowledge that I've, I've not explained what I'm doing properly, because if they're coming in expecting them to do a half an hour exercise session, I've not told them what my role on the team is, because a lot of the time it is doing exercise, but it's me trying to find ways to help them improve their physical activity outside of the sessions and obviously without my help. Um, so I guess it does vary from person to person. Um, well, there was something else I wanted to bring up, but I've forgotten it. I'll remember and I'll put my hand up. Angela, please take us away. I think it's so interesting that um, Alex mentioned the the space um, in terms of, yes, uni teaches you to basically have a fully decked out gym and use all the equipment there. But I was fortunate or unfortunate, depends how you see it, to be um, a COVID clinical like uh, I did my placement during COVID well I didn't do my placement we did telehealth so one thing that uni actually really really prepared me for was not having any equipment and just kind of thinking about exercises you can do with literally nothing Um, because of the current role I have doing community EP so I'm traveling to people's houses I'm in like aged care facilities or I'm in a group home you kind of just have to use what's there and that may just be a bed or a chair and you just have to be so creative so yeah I was very lucky that I guess COVID happened and we had to figure things out on the fly yeah you know what I love about that is it teaches you to be good at utilizing your exercise variables you know your your range of motion your time under tension if you have any load things like that uh because you have to get creative with it right and you're doing things that are completely unorthodox out of the box and then on top of that you will have to end up being like okay this is why we're doing it this way to explain to the client or to whoever is funding it for you guys um that it's still good for them and that's hard without equipment without a decked out gym space because when an insurance company sees oh yeah they're in a state-of-the-art facility blah 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 they're gonna get great you know healthcare here it's like, is that the case? Is it really the case? Yeah. 
Um, I think um, just speaking on the thing with the decked out space and whatnot, I would I would say I'm quite happy that sometimes I don't have that space because again I don't get to see them every two three times a week. I see them you know on a more longer basis. If I had a big gym space, maybe I could do a little bit more. But in terms of, I don't see the point in having such a big space if I'm just seeing them once a month um, and running them through something. Yeah, it would be good for some prescription, but in that case. I just wanted to touch on something just it was interesting how you said no um not many gps no eps and whatnot just to clarify that in the southwestern district for public health we have seven eps in the whole of the in the whole of new south wales health there's seven and not all of them are practicing are doing clinical ep work some of them are doing health promotions or other roles so i think there's might be only five or four that are actually seeing clients on a regular basis um and that actually can that does impact the role that EPs have in public health, because if there aren't any EPs in public health advocating for that, then you're not going to get students on placement. And if you don't get students on placement, students on placement don't get to learn about public health. And if you don't have any EPs there, no one's going to know about EPs and no one's going to want to send them through. Um, so I guess that's one of the also important things in the public health sphere. I don't think, or at least in my area, there's not that many EPs. It's very, very um difficult to then advocate for the role because they're like, oh, but why would we advocate for you when we have hundreds of physios in the hospital doing acute care? And you're trying to say, well, there are roles that are relevant for EPs, but there's not enough people that are sort of in that area, if that makes sense. Unpopular opinion, but I think all allied health should just merge as one and everyone should just be everything. I literally said this, I think, on our intro podcast. I said osteos, chiros, physios, EPs, it's one job. I don't care. It's one job. You can talk about chronic, acute, whatever. You can have your niches, yes, but to separate them the way we have them now makes it so hard referral-wise. I think if we're already finding gaps in our EP education, then if we merged everyone and tried to put that in one four-year degree or something, it would just not work. And everyone would just go into niches anyway, which is basically just different professions. So I think in some cases, e.g. chronic pain, I get that those things can be merged. We should all be doing pretty much the same thing. Um, In terms of other things like um, really what's, I don't know, other other niches, maybe like cancer or acute care or things like that, I can see how the roles are slightly different. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. If we merged everyone together, everyone would be a generalist or we would need like a six-year degree like doctors, basically. We'd be like the GPs of allied health yeah, movement and exactly. stuff. There's pros and cons. I think generally, like, we just need to improve messaging and improve um, uh, the incentive to be more up to date. And, yeah, it would just become specialised in niches and everything anyway. That's what I say, at least. Alex? So it's interesting. I know I brought it up, but it's um, I haven't had that experience when I've had to. So often some kids that I see will be seeing physios or OTs. And I've had to reach out to ask them what they're doing so that I can also make sure that I'm either doubling up or not doubling up on what they're doing. And I haven't had that in terms of what the physio is doing is very, very different from what I'm doing. So I guess maybe in in my space, I haven't had too much of a, um, oh, the physio is doing exactly what I would have done, you know, in terms of that. But 
I think in this in the area that I'm doing, I haven't really had that, you know, head knocks in terms of oh, an EP should be in that role, an EP should be there, or an EP should do that. Because the physio that I've had talked to or the physios I've consulted with with for care or coordinated care with the kids that I'm seeing have actually had very different opinions or very different approaches, which has been a little bit helpful because sometimes I feel like we do get into the space of our physios and EPs should just be the same thing. And then sometimes I talk to the physios and they've come up with a lot of different areas of thinking that I haven't necessarily thought of just as my background as an EP. I do think that the degrees for EPs and physios at unis as a whole need to be improved but i think that's a different discussion that we can have on another day um angela just opened a whole can of <laughs> i feel like another example is neuro population so like ep ot and physio do like very different things and there can be crossovers and i think the best sort of situation is them working in a team and exactly what you said alex like hey what are you doing what am i doing and um, it helps provide this overall care. Like what OTs are doing, for example, is really different to a physio. And then physios and EPs can have more crossover. From my placement, I saw that physios were doing more of like the really intricate like gait stuff and EPs were doing the more general like strengthening up stuff, balance stuff. Um, so, yeah, definitely crossovers, but I can see why um, different roles may be needed. Well, I think in my work as well, generally they'll obviously see a physio first. So they're actually doing more like passive therapies. Um, so like more massaging and things like that. It also, I will say, depends on the physio that they're seeing. Some do actually prefer to go through more like kind of more like a exercise kind of way, but majority as well will do more like those manual therapies, like, um, whatever they call it. Like, I don't really know them. But like dry needling and things like that. But then again as well, that actually makes it harder for us because some clients will become very like not addicted, but they prefer their passive methods than kind of an active method, which for me as well is is a bit of a challenge. But that's only some, it, it depends on how much pain and yeah, kind of depends on their the client, but as well, yeah. Yeah, that to me is less of like uh, allied health should be under the same roof um, chat edits more about they're not being up to date with the evidence. You can provide passive treatments while also doing like saying those under the like right narratives and helping working and moving them through to an EP. Like they themselves can even do the active treatments. And that expectation I find is really interesting and it's fed by like multiple sources. So like general society being like this is what a physio does uni teaching physios that's what you do and work cover being like why would I send someone to a physio if they're not doing passive stuff so yeah I think that's a <laughs> another kettle of fish <laughs> yeah I actually want to go back and I want to clarify now because and this is also why it's great to have somebody to pull you up and challenge you right because my brain uh the way it works is I get an idea and then boom, I run with it and I say some things that are not really thought out sometimes. And then Emily pulls me up on them, which is great, right? So what I said was a bit um, too generalist, too overarching, right? So what I really meant was when talking about chronic pain, those four professions that I mentioned can all be one. They can all do the same job. Um, 
but the, the other points we brought up now, like especially neuro, and that's also why I didn't mention OT, because they do specific different things in people's lives, like everyday activities, they help them with those, um, that we, we don't tackle in the pain space, for instance, and then neuro on top of that with gait and stuff like that, that all still matters, yeah. So I guess I should have clarified that there and then. So thank you, Emily, for challenging me. Angela's there like, fuck. <laughs> what did I start? She's like, it really was an unpopular opinion. It really was. But UNW <laughs> is doing the um they're actually combining the degrees, aren't they? The physio and EP. So I'm excited to see how that pans out in the next couple of years because there'll be people graduating with both. Yeah, I'm not too. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So I've actually been asked whether I'm ready for students from placement from UNSW, which I've said no. Um, and I guess that's something I wanted to touch on just because as a new grad, it's not something you really realize on placement. Sometimes you come out of it and you're like, oh, why didn't they teach me this on placement? The amount of work it takes to just have one student, I did not realize. And so I'm so thankful to all those people who had to supervise me because um, I went through the process with my um, with someone else on the team and they were just going through the process they're like okay you need to make sure that their placement's meaningful you have to have objectives for them you have to write this for them this 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 and then looking at having all that work on top of what i'm already doing having a student there <laughs> would just be a lot and i guess um i guess that's something that i didn't consider as a student i just kind of assumed that the person who is supervising me had everything under control, definitely had enough time to take everything for me into account. But I guess that's probably why you come out with gaps in your knowledge because you're there on placement, they're still doing a full-time job and then having to supervise you as well. And whilst it's it's easy, it's easy to think that they can just turn around and say, oh, I did this prescription because I've done this, it's a lot harder to then just sort of teach someone as you go. Um, so I guess that's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if I am ready to have a student from placement and get one of those students. But yeah, I think the reason why we miss out on so much things is because we have to have a certain amount of hours of seeing people like clinical experience. And so then if you're a full-time student and you're working and you're doing placement full-time, the last thing you're going to be thinking is how can I spend a few extra hours at placement learn? Or well, some people will, but like if they really want to show you processes and things, that's another few extra hours that's not clinical, that doesn't go towards your degree. And I can speak as a student there. I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking more, how can I get all my clinical hours sorted before graduating? I wasn't thinking, oh, can I spend five hours that won't go to my degree learning the processes of this business, which I think I wish I had done looking back at it now. Yeah, I think with that, it's also really um, difficult to know what you want to do in third and fourth year and so you kind of take up placements being like all right let's just see what I like so looking back at it you're like oh these are the things I would have um, needed or appreciated more so yeah that makes sense so yeah so anyways off to the next topic <laughs> going off that so can we talk a little bit about green and red flags regarding businesses because um, I think this would be really exciting I just want to say one thing before that is like on that topic is um, I know and I said this on the student podcast that a lot of people on podcasts talk about what they want from their students or what they want from their new grads and I really want to flip that around and be like all right now that we were like oh, I just really need to get a job and we're here and we're experiencing it 
and reflecting on it, what are the things that we do want from our work and we don't want and how do you navigate those things? So, yeah, let's talk about the red flags, green flags, um, and then we can also um, talk about as well a little bit about um, values and how we navigate our own values. Firstly, learn about what our values are and navigate that with our bosses and coworkers. There's a few things there, but, yeah, put that out to the to the team. Um, Angela, since you started the topic, you can go first. Okay. So I guess it's a little bit different for me because I've predominantly worked in private practice and I also now work in community. So again, it's um, NDIS funded. So I kind of just go to the client's houses. So I've kind of seen like both ends of it, right? In terms of green flags for a business is allowing time for you as a clinician to write notes, to do your admin, and for that to be billable or whatever part of like your day is probably, I cannot stress this enough, so, so, so important because it comes, you know, the end of the week and the system that they have actually sends you an email to be like, hey, like you haven't completed your notes, like you haven't done this. And it's just made my life a thousand times easier because I haven't forgotten my notes and it means it gets done. Um, But yeah, just having time to do your notes, to do your admin, to do emails, to do your NDIS plan, to do your report, et cetera, et cetera, which takes up a lot of time. Yeah, it's just, I just love it. Um, Red flags, I'll probably pass that on to someone else. Or should we just start, start talking about green flags and then we'll go red? Yeah, sounds good. Alex? I have a big green flag. Um, My boss doesn't let me work overtime at all. Um, 4.30, I have to go home. Um, I'm not allowed. I'm not actually allowed to use my work laptop at home because I don't have a VPN. Um, So outside of working hours, I'm not really like, look, if I want to do research in my spare time, that's up to me. But in terms of work, work, I'm quite frowned upon doing it outside of work. And that's kind of helped me get into a routine of, you know, at 4.30, I can go home and I can just de-stress and I don't have to think about it. And then, you know, before I start work at 8 a.m. or whatever time it is at 8 a.m., but I know I have the morning to do my own thing. I don't have to wake up and send that email. Once I get to work at 8 a.m., that's when I start doing it. And I guess the healthiest thing is my boss asks me on a very regular basis, Alex, do you feel like your caseload is manageable? Just remember, you can call and shuffle around um, clients if you feel like you have too many kids booked on one day. For example, we just had school holidays where I had 10 kids booked on one day. And she said, Alex, just call them and move them around because you're not going to manage if all 10 kids come. So I think that's probably one of the healthiest things is it's very, very, this is the time to do your work. If you don't finish it tomorrow, um, and then we do have systems in place if we forget or setting it up, but it's like, don't spend your outside time doing work because then you're not going to recover from anything. Andrew? (laughs) I just found that, like, that's really lovely that your boss respects those boundaries of like, this is work, this is life, and then also respects your capacity. So this is a lot and we need you and your mental health and your physical health is important. Don't book 10 kids in a day sort of thing. Something you wanted to say, Andrew? Yeah, there is one thing because um, as somebody like myself, I'm not really good at organization, right? I'm really bad at it actually. And uh, this is not a call out to our supervisors, M, but they're up really early starting their day. They're always doing something. And sometimes we'll get a message or an email at five in the morning. And it doesn't mean we have to answer that. But if we don't set boundaries with ourselves, right, like I didn't used to, 
we'll end up working at such odd hours. So the fact that you have like literally there's, there is no physical way for you to work out of your hours because you can't even use your laptop, Alex. And that's like such a hard boundary. And I love that because it's really hard to set them yourself sometimes. Like I've struggled with that. Definitely. Just want to say that anecdote. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cassie? I think my green flag is I, th- I think most private practices will have this but I think my company's pretty good at it we will always be assigned like someone higher up and they will always do like a welfare check on you every week and like you they will literally mostly say like you can message us anytime even if it's outside of work um so kind of someone to kind of like mentor you that's a green flag as well as also like obviously I did a lot of um meetings when like trying to get a job interviews when the company kind of actually says what their expectations of you are. Some, I'm not going to say they're not like, they don't mislead you, but they won't give you all the information in that one interview or over those periods of interviews. And you kind of learn what your expectations are on the job. I like it when in the interview, like this is what we expect of you. And yeah, like just bring it out on the table. Yeah, that's so true. Mm. That was all I had to say. I was like just thinking about it being like, I, I, yeah, I how I honest are they mm. in interviews and things like that? Yeah, Andrew? Oh, well, yeah, I was just going to say I, I agree with that because then it gives you something that you can go in day one and be like, all right, this is what I need to do. This is what they're expecting of me. And then you can say, is that achievable for me? Should I have a talk to somebody about that? Instead of getting there day one and then they're like, all right, here's your workload off you go and you're like oh hold on the, like expectations shattered I, what am I doing here uh, I hate this yeah I think that's a great thing yeah so like actually asking hey what are your expectations of me what does what would a typical day for me look like where would I be getting these supports like actually yourself asking them that back because obviously they they've got a bunch of things they want to know about you and um I think them telling you about the job and their expectations of you might not be a priority for them or might not even cross their mind to let you know. I think as well, just for like a new grad, just some tips for an interview. Know what, like kind of M said, know what you want in a company and ask those questions in an interview because most times they are happy to answer you back. And if they're not, then I think that's a bit of a red flag. (laughs) Um, One thing I wanted to say about my green flag, and then I'll let you go, Alex, um, was my boss very much said, this is the way I like to do things and you can do it in whatever way you like to do it. And it was just so nice to be able to have that autonomy and that respect that like you can come to me and we can collaborate, um, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to say I'm a senior clinician, I'm a business owner and this is the way to do it because I found results this way. It was just, yeah, very much you can do what you want. And I'll give you that support. That was a massive flag for me. Green, green one. Alex. Mm, for me, and I'm not, I'm pretty sure this is all around. It's CPD. Um, so my team actually organizes monthly C. So we have a monthly team meeting. And during that monthly team meeting, we always do CPD that's relevant to work. So we always have some CPD, but it's also hey, Alex, is there any CPD that you found that you really want to book? Because we can always schedule out a day for you to go and do it. And there's processes where I, because obviously I don't do CPDs on the weekend, unless it's for me, not for work. And 
work does fund your CPDs as well. So it's like, okay, we can find a way to um, sort out the CPD and make sure you're still getting paid for when you're there because you're still doing it for work and things like that. Um, and I just, the discussion is just very open to making sure I'm doing the right kinds of CPD. Um, and I guess that's that's mainly it, just making sure that they they also look out for my further learning because they're like, Alex, you're our EP. We want you to know as much as you can. So, you know, this is what we can do for you. And if you there's anything else you think that you could be doing more, you just let us know. And I was like, ah, oh, that's that's very supportive. Yeah, nice. Oh, Angela. I think just as a whole, like a huge green flag is having mentorship or someone you can go to to be like, hey, like I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm not sure. And to provide that feedback because it's especially as a new grad, you're just so overwhelmed by everything and all the processes. And sometimes it's nice just to have someone there to be like, hey, you're doing a good job. It's okay. Like this is part of the process. Like it's so important to have in a business. And I think it's probably been touched on before, but as EPs, we don't have supervisors like psychologists do. So we kind of kind of have to either look externally or hopefully have a go into a job where there is someone there to help you out. Yeah, it's a really important one. Um Moving on to red flags, and you can obviously talk in general, so it doesn't specifically have to be red flags that you're seeing at your work. It could be red flags that, let's say, you were looking for a job. What would be those red flags? Anyone want to go first? Um, oh, I guess for me it would be setting a uh, – when KPIs become more important than client care. So it's fine. I think it's fine to set a KPI or say, you know, we're a business, we do require a KPI, but when it becomes to more, how many clients can you fit in the day rather than how many, how, how much quality care you're giving? I think that's a big red flag because then it's looking at, it's more money-based than care-based and we are EPs. We're still clinicians. We do have a duty to be treating our clients appropriately and properly. Cassie. Um. I always ask if it's a private, so not really my work, but why they're charging the amount that they are. And I kind of want to hear the reasoning behind it. Um, so I think, Em, you may know what I'm talking about here, but um, I just want to hear the value of, yeah, why this. there are some businesses out there that do charge, I would say, a premium quite high. And I always like to know why. <laughs> don't want to like say something bad <laughs> but like yeah I just want to know why and what their reasoning behind it is because I I think as well when you're a new grad you start out because generally most people just want to help people but I understand that for private it is a business and you do need to make a profit to be able to afford things and open new clinics and afford equipment and everything however when I don't agree with the price and their justification for it is I don't think it's a good enough justification. Yeah, that's a red flag. Because <laughs> like kind of Alex said, it's they're putting profit over patient care. Uh, I'm going to give my little perspective on this. And the thing that I've noticed when it comes to pricing, it's a little bit to do with like the local economy kind of thing. So I've noticed that if you're in the eastern suburbs, things are going to cost you $200 for a session, whatever it is. If you're out west, it might be 88 bucks. Um, and that's a lot to do with what people can afford in that area. And I understand that because when you do some market research and you realize, hey, like the, the GP over here, this physio over here, they're all charging this amount. So I should probably charge that amount too. Um, 
is it the most valid way to do it? I don't know. I don't know too much about business to be completely honest. Um, like ethical, that's another thing entirely, but end of the day, it's a job. We have a service and we got to pick what's right for the area. So I do understand why people do that, but yeah. I think there's a line between I'm doing what's right for the area and these are my circumstances, this is my rent, blah, 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 and I can charge this because people will pay it and I can do this because we want a certain type of clientele. Like I think having a deep think about, okay, how much profit can I make and then how much can I give back to the community? Like there's, it's a whole other podcast in itself. Um so I think that, yes, you could charge like a really high price and justify it and reflect and think about it and all of that. And you can also charge a really high price just because you can. So that's what I'm thinking. Um, any specific other red flags, Cassie? None that I want to go into. <laughs> yeah, all good. Um, Alex? I'm a very generalized one, so you guys can jump on it if you want. When your decisions aren't supported, and I mean for the better or for the worse. So if I have make a decision and it's wrong, or if there's things that other people think could be added onto it, it's not shut down completely. It's more, oh, Alex, that's a good point, but we need to consider these things first rather than Alex, no. Um, same thing if I'm giving something, you know, exercise, specific exercise related, and I'm quite sure that I've done the research, I've done the, um, I've done my due diligence and it's just completely thrown out the window before anyone's discussed it. I feel like that's a big red flag. Because like, like I said, I'm very fortunate on my team where a lot of our thoughts, a lot of our stuff are discussed with everyone. Um, but I feel like if I said something and it gets shut down straight away without any reasoning or without just saying, okay, Alex, we need to approach this first before we look at what you're talking about. That is a red flag to me because then it just shows that it's not about your learning. It's not about working as a team. It's about whoever has the most superiority to just say no. Um, and I guess that sometimes comes with what Cass was talking about with when GPs tell you you can't talk or when they say you know I actually know more it's like you you're a GP done a lot of work there but you know I'm quite yeah in that sense I just that's a big red flag to me anyone else have any red flags because if not I think we're ready to wrap it up and yeah all good. yeah sounds good all right. Thank you so much, guys. Like, I feel like we could keep talking about this and there's so many experiences that we've had in the first at least six months for majority of us and a year or so for Angela. So for the listeners, where can everyone find you? Uh, so Alex. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. My first name's Alexander, last name's Jensen, just as accredited exercise physiologist. Um It'll have Southwestern Sydney Local Health District on it. So if you want to talk to me, you can reach me there. Awesome. Angela? It's on Instagram, so it's just Angela underscore XFiz. Yeah, on LinkedIn, just Cassandra Wong. Awesome. Thank you so much for your openness. I know that it's a lot to talk about out in the open and, yeah. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Research to Practice What Do. You can find all relevant episode information in the caption and find us on Instagram at research the number two practice underscore podcast, as well as on our personal pages at mwalker underscore xviz and at andrewxviz. And with that, we encourage you to remember that research means you don't know, but you're willing to find out.